0: Good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7 through 13 this morning as we continue our study of the book of Hebrews. As we come to our passage for this morning, we come to this question of why it is that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the author has continually explained the superior nature of Christ's ministry and the new era that His life, death, and resurrection inaugurates. His ministry is superior to the angels. It's superior to Moses and to Joshua, to Aaron and the Levites, and In chapter 8, the author transitions from what we have been seeing over the last several weeks, the superior nature of Christ's priesthood, to now the superior nature of the covenant that is established through the work and ministry of Christ. His point is clearly stated in verse 6 from last week's passage. There we read, but... As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. The new covenant is better than the old covenant because the promises that it makes are better promises. The superiority of the New Covenant is to the degree that our passage will even state that the Old Covenant is now obsolete. It's no longer needed. Over the last several decades, the advancement of digital technology has made many commonplace things obsolete. No longer are there phone booths or cassette tapes or floppy disks or beepers or overhead projectors, phone books are completely obsolete, and Blockbuster. Anyone who is over 40 years old remembers Blockbuster, waiting six months for a movie to finish its run in the theater to be then released on videotape. And you would wait for it to hit the shelves, and then they would come out with like, 30 or 40 copies of it, but if it was something that everyone wanted to see, like Independence Day, it would be gone. And so then you would go up to the clerk and ask the clerk, is there anyone that's going to return it soon? Maybe I'll wait around for it to come back. But if nothing comes back, you just had to choose another movie. It was exciting times, but compared to what we have now, it was terribly inefficient. And once streaming services like Netflix or Disney Plus launched, the whole system became obsolete. No more waiting several months. No more limitations based on the copies in the store. No more driving back and forth to a physical location only to be disappointed and having to watch something else. The new system is so far superior to the old that the old system is obsolete. It's gone. In our passage for this morning, the author is helping us to see that when you compare the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, the choice becomes clear. The New Covenant is so far superior to the Old. And in fact, the New Covenant is so far superior to the Old that the Old is now obsolete. There's no more need for it. There was a proper time for the Old Covenant. It served its purpose, but now to return to the Old Covenant would be like going back to videotape rentals. The bulk of our passage for this morning is a quote from Jeremiah 31. The prophet Jeremiah lived in the day when Jerusalem fell and the people of Judah were exiled from Canaan about the 6th century B.C. But God, by His grace, Show Jeremiah a day when the Lord would make a new covenant with his people. A covenant that would no longer be subject to the weaknesses that led to the exile. Now what are the advantages of the new covenant that have made the old covenant obsolete? What we'll see in our text for this morning is that the new covenant is superior to the old because its promises are superior the promises of inward transformation full exoneration from sin and eternal restoration with god so here now the word of the lord hebrews chapter 8 we'll read verses 7 through 13 and I'll remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, we come to You now at this time, and we pray, O Lord, that You would watch over and protect us, Your people, as we come to Your Word. We pray, O Lord, that You would protect us from the attacks of this world and from the attacks of the enemy that would seek to detract us from hearing Your Word. And we pray, O God, that You would reveal to us by Your Word and by Your Spirit the superior nature of the new covenant in Christ and give to us the grace of a renewed mind, a transformed heart, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we do pray. Amen. Well, as we come to the Word of God this morning we see that it has always been God's intent to transform His people inwardly. It's a temptation always for us to be content with outward change, without true inward transformation. We see this all around us and those who, uh, who would come and proclaim to be Christians and sometimes even in our own lives, right? Right? people who outwardly proclaim their faith but don't live in a manner that's reflective of their profession. They wear the right T-shirts, listen to the right music, speak the right Christian language, display the right bumper sticker, repost Christian articles on Facebook. However, they're always angry and judgmental and greedy and self-focused, have no commitment to the people of God or the local church, They speak of the gospel, but they live according to their own righteousness. They are hypocrites, pharisaical. But the Lord is not content with mere outward obedience. His goal is complete inward transformation for His people. And this is the first way that we see the superior nature of the new covenant. Look at verse 10 of our text again. There we read, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Three important points that I want to see here in verse 10. The first is that the Lord will sovereignly provide the inward transformation that He requires of us. You see, the promise of the new covenant begins with the regenerating work of the Lord. It is the Lord who will transform minds and hearts and not man. This is the covenant that I will make, that I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. It is the Lord who transforms the inward life and not man. This is reflected in the new covenant promise in Ezekiel chapter 36 and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It is the work of the Lord that is promised in the new covenant that He will do what we cannot do on our own, which is to change our hearts. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, the promise of the new covenant is that the Lord will initiate an inward transformation process of the heart. We call this inward transformation regeneration or new birth. Sin has caused us to be spiritually dead. We have hearts of stone. There is nothing that we can do to change ourselves. But the promise of the new covenant is that God will cause his people to be born again, that he will transform us according to his own inward work. This is one of the most important insights of the reformed faith. We often believe that the order of the work of salvation begins with our own faith. If we would have faith, then we would be born again. But the Bible teaches us the reverse order it is not us who initiates the work of salvation, it's not us who initiates the work of transformation. Rather, God transforms our hearts. God causes us to be born again. And only then can we have faith. Only then can we have life in Christ. For how could a heart of stone believe? How could a spiritually dead person trust in Christ? How could one yet not born do anything? God is the one who promises that He will put His law into our minds and our hearts. And therefore, the promise of the new covenant is that our salvation is all of God's grace. The second point that we see in verse 10 is that the new covenant will transform our minds and our hearts. You see, the reason that the work of salvation must begin with God and not with man is because man's whole inward life is corrupted by sin. There is no ability within us to reason out salvation on our own or to love God as we ought to love God. The Reformed faith calls this total depravity. And the doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean that we are as bad as we could be. We could be worse than we are. Rather, what total means in total depravity is that everything within you as a human being has been touched And bent and corrupted by sin to the degree that there is nowhere that you can go within your own internal resources that would lead you to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your mind is darkened. Your heart is stone, And therefore, it is God who must intervene in your life to do an internal work of transformation so that you can have faith in Him. The weakness of the Old Covenant is centered on its inability to change the human heart. It spoke the truth of God's will for our lives. The law in and of itself is good and righteous and true. It's a positive guide for how we are to live. But it is ineffective in producing the behavior it requires because our minds and our hearts are corrupted by sin. We don't think rightly. We don't feel rightly. But the promise of the new covenant is that God would change us inwardly that God will do a work by which our minds are freed from the bondage to sin and enlightened in the knowledge of Christ. An inward work by which we come to love what God loves and hate what God hates. The promise is that we would be internally transformed into the image of Christ. Even as we read in Romans chapter 8, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The promise of the new covenant is that God will transform us to be like His Son. And the third thing that we see in verse 10 is that there is continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. For God is not throwing out His people or His law. Rather, the new covenant is made with the house of Israel, and it is His law that is being written upon our hearts. You see, there is continuity, but there is development. For in the new covenant, the house of Israel includes not merely those who are sons by birth, but those who are sons by faith. That is to say, the house of Israel is the church in the new covenant. Both Jew and Greek united into one family through faith in Jesus Christ. Not a replacement of Israel, but an organic expansion and fulfillment of what Israel always meant to be. Us Gentiles, grafted into the vine, and therefore the covenant made with Israel is the covenant made with the church. And the law is not overthrown. Rather, by the inward transformation, the law becomes a joy of obedience and not a weight of condemnation. If the Lord's desire were to do away with the law as so many people preach today, it wouldn't make sense that the promise of the new covenant is that he would take that very law that they say is being thrown out and write it upon the hearts of his people. Christian, we must know such a transformation. We can't be content with outward professions of faith. There must be an internal transformation of the heart. As Paul commands the church in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Or as Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The transformative new birth is the better promise of the New Covenant. Don't be content with an outward reorganizing of your life, but submit yourself to the work of God and believe the better promise of the New Covenant, that God will change your heart. You see, the Old Covenant is obsolete because of the superior nature of the New. First, the new covenant is superior because it promises inward transformation. And the next thing that we will see is that it is superior because it promises full exoneration. Look at verse 12. There it promises, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, the word exoneration means to officially absolve someone of guilt, to unburden them of their guilt. We must understand the need that we have to be forgiven of our sin. Many of us live with a sense of guilt or shame. We have this overriding sense that we've done something wrong, and yet often our sense of guilt leads us all in the wrong direction. First we can feel guilty for imagined or wrong reasons. We can feel guilty for not living up to expectations or for inadvertently offending other people. We feel guilty for things that are out of our control. We feel guilty if we couldn't make the winning shot in a game or If we don't know that it was going to rain when we planned our cookout. We feel guilty when we lose money in an investment that wasn't the wisest investment. We feel guilty when our children rebel. We feel guilty when a loved one dies and we feel like we could have intervened and done something better. We feel guilty when things out of our control just don't work out. And sometimes, if there's nothing that we can pinpoint about which we might feel guilty, we come up with reasons to feel guilty. I'm not sure, but I think I may have offended John. I think that I may have accidentally stolen a can of beans from Walmart. I think I clicked three times, but I'm not sure. It may have only been two. I think I may have hit someone with my car. I'm not sure. I felt a bump. At the time, I didn't think anything of it, but now I think I may have hit somebody. Second, we can feel guilty toward the wrong people. Are there people that whenever they call or contact you, you think that you're in trouble? There was an elder at my church in South Carolina, and any time he contacted me, I was nervous that he was going to accuse me of doing something wrong. I would worry and I would fret that I had some hidden offense against him and that he was calling to expose it. And I'm not even sure why I felt this way about him. He was a lovely man of God who never treated me in a mean manner. Nevertheless, whenever he contacted me, I felt guilty and I would search for what he might be angry about and then I would build my defense. Never to be given. And third, we seek to relieve our guilt in all the wrong ways. We punish ourselves. And the history of the world is filled with attempts to relieve our guilt through this self-punishment. I ate too much, so I'm not going to eat for the next two or three days to make up for it. I hurt her feelings, so I'm going to internally berate myself to make up for it. I make too much money. I feel guilty that I make so much money, so I'm going to give thousands of dollars away so that I don't have to feel so bad about the amount of money I make. It's not uncommon for children to slap their own arms when their parents correct them. Or for teenagers to cut themselves, or for religious zealots to whip their backs, to atone for their sins, and to relieve their guilt, to seek to exonerate themselves. It has been said that we are a generation that doesn't understand sin, but we truly understand guilt. Why do we feel and act this way? Well, it is because we are guilty. And it's because we do deserve punishment. But our guilt is not what we think. And the punishment we pursue will never suffice. You see, our guilt is rooted in real transgression, not imagined. Our guilt is towards a truly offended party, not one that we make up in our minds. And our guilt does make us liable to deserved punishment. But our guilt is toward God. It is the law of God that we have broken. It is to God that we owe an eternal debt. We have a sense of guilt, but until we see that it is guilt against God, we will continue to run in circles trying to understand why we feel the way that we feel continually putting it on things that are out of our control continually thinking it's the people that are around us continually thinking that we can punish ourselves and make up for our wrong but the reality is that it is god that we have offended and under the old covenant there were signs and there were symbols of forgiveness that were given There were sacrifices of lambs offered that showed that both the penalty for sin, death, and the forgiveness of sin through a substitute would be given. But in the New Covenant, the signs and the symbols of forgiveness are ultimately fulfilled in the one-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Even as we read in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The new covenant is so far superior to the old covenant because the blood of Jesus Christ washes us clean from the guilt of sin. It takes away the burden of guilt and gives to us a righteous standing before God. For the penalty of our sin is a greater burden than we could ever bear. For we have not merely sinned against another person, we have sinned against the infinitely holy God, and therefore our punishment must be eternal death. But God in His new covenant mercy has given us the infinitely valuable blood of Jesus Christ. Christian, you must trust in the full forgiveness offered to you in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. You need no longer live under this constant feeling of guilt, always seeking to justify yourself, always seeking to punish yourself. For the enemy who is called the accuser will come to you and will try to lay the burden of sin upon you over and over and over again, saying, look at this guilty sinner. But we who live under the new covenant promise can look to Jesus Christ and say, but He has paid the price. Yes, I am guilty, but the cross means that my guilt has been washed away. There is full exoneration because what Christ has done. And you need no longer live under the burden of your guilt. Why is the new covenant superior to the old? because it provides the internal transformation that we cannot provide on our own. It gives to us a full exoneration, an unburdening of our sin. And the third thing that we see is that it provides eternal reconciliation with God. Look at the second half of verse 10 and then into verse 11. There we read, "...and I will be their God." And they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. As you see, I've addressed this passage out of order. I skipped these verses and then went down to verse 12. I did this because. The order that we experience the promises of the new covenant come in this order. By God's grace, we receive the transformation of our heart and mind. Once we have received this new birth, we repent of our sin, place our faith in Jesus Christ, and receive complete forgiveness. And once we have received complete forgiveness through Christ, we are reconciled to God. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. This is why the new covenant surpasses everything that came before. God promises full reconciliation through Jesus Christ. By our sin, we are estranged from God. You see, God is the judge in the courtroom. Yes, but he is also the father against whom we have rebelled. He is the husband whom we have cheated on. He is the friend that we have betrayed. You see, it is not merely legal guilt that must be dealt with in the gospel, but it is this relational estrangement that occurs when we rebel against God that must be dealt with. We are separated from God's blessing and His life because of our sin, but the promise of the new covenant is that in Jesus Christ, the guilt and the shame are washed away, and we are received by God as his people, yet again. At the heart of the covenant relationship between God and the church is this promise that I will be their God and they will be my people. It is expressed in the covenant that's made with Abraham, with Moses, the new covenant prophecies. It's echoed throughout the New Testament and it comes to fulfillment in the book of Revelation. Revelation. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. You see, the New Covenant promise is that a day is coming when each one of us in Christ will not only know about the Lord, but we will be reconciled to God in such a way that we would say we know Him as our Father. Not merely about Him, but as Are God eternally reconciled. As a pastor, one of the hardest tasks that's ever set before us is to do marriage counseling. When you have a husband and a wife who have neglected their marriage for years, for years have been sowing toward the bad, they've hurt each other, years of bitterness and anger, and they want to come in and argue who is right and who is wrong. And they continue to bring up these little points of conflict. And they want to you know, start World War III over who was supposed to load the dishwasher on Tuesday night. And they think that's the problem. But that's not the problem. The problem is that there is a relational tension that has been built up over the years because they have sinned against each other and they will not be reconciled to each other. And the divide that is between us and God is not merely legal. It is this relational division in which we have offended God. But the promise of the new covenant is that the offense Has been washed away, and that we are received back as his full children, not any longer estranged by our rebellion, but embraced by our God and called his people for all eternity. It can be difficult to admit when something has become obsolete. There's loyalty, there's nostalgia that makes us feel a sense of loss when we move on to the next thing. And I remember when I was in high school that my teachers would lament the rise of word processing programs at the expense of typewriters. They would reminisce about the superior sound and feel of typing on a typewriter compared with a a keyboard. And they would bemoan the lack of discipline it took to produce papers today. Nevertheless, none of them use typewriters, nor does anyone else, for that matter, because they're difficult to use. If you make a mistake, you have to start over or use whiteout to cover up your mistake. Setting margins and spacing is complicated. If you lose your work, there's no saved material to go back to, right? Typing on a word processor, that's a computer, is so far superior to a typewriter that they are now faded away from life. And this is the point that the author is making. Look at what he says in verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, that's in God speaking through Jeremiah, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Our sermon series through the book of Hebrews is entitled, Jesus is Better. Why? Why? Because the author is continually making this point. The work of Jesus Christ is not one option among several options. He is the only option for life and salvation. For the covenant that He establishes is not merely about signs and outward rituals. Rather, He has truly accomplished transformation. He has accomplished true forgiveness. And He has accomplished eternal and full reconciliation between God and his people in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen let us pray almighty god we come to you now and we pray that you would give to us the grace that our hearts and our minds might be transformed by your word and your spirit that we might walk in the knowledge of our forgiveness and the knowledge that we have been embraced as your people, eternally knowing and being known. We pray, Lord, that you would give to us such a taste of this reality, even this day, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.